Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I will be speaking with Jay Chandan, Chairman and CEO of Gorilla Technology, and Raj Natarajan, its Chief Innovation Officer. Gorilla closed a $720 million combination agreement with global SPAC partners in July, and has since been a bright spot among recent e-SPACs, consistently trading in the $11 to $12 range. Jay and Raj explain how the 20-year-old video intelligence company is meeting growing demand for new AI solutions in the edge computing space, and how its mix of public readiness and a willingness to make changes to the initial deal to be the changing market have helped Gorilla to be successful post-close. Take a listen. So Gorilla has been one of the precious few companies to rise once they have hit the market this year, whether by SPAC or IPO. And so just to start, I'm curious, just how does it feel to have gotten this debut? You know, is it invigorating or is it a bit more like relief just given how the market has looked this year? The market has been a bit tumultuous, but we've been managing to keep our chins up and focus on where we wanted to deliver and how we wanted to deliver. And I think that is quite important. Uh, we are um, invigorated by the whole fact that, you know, our stocks uh, with withered this time. But what you also have to take into account is the market has kind of evolved over the last few uh, weeks and months. And if you look at the political, the way the political scenarios have played out, our technology now seems to be on the forefront. You know, Gorilla has an outstanding technology. Uh, it has a remarkably broad, broad applicability. And we're ever re-expanding into, into the ecosystem while continuing to innovate. And so clients are looking at us and wanting to come forward and asking us more and more questions. In fact, they're asking us to participate in much larger bids as well. And so I feel that somehow that is helping the business. Uh, more importantly, it's keeping the employees on their toes. And it's also keeping the employees all the more excited. Yeah, totally. And moving over into that business, I, I imagine a good deal of our listeners are not incredibly familiar with what edge computing is, but I'm, I imagine you're used to giving elevator pitches on it all the time. And so just, you know, what is edge computing and, and why is it a growing part of the broader software and hardware space right now, Raj? So the domain that we, we exist in is actually pretty uh, interesting and exciting in its own right. A lot of people uh, like to uh, refer to it as an edge computing uh, company, but at the end of the day, uh, I think at the heart and at, at score, we are a secure AI company, and that's how I like to look at it. And edge just happens to be an important facet of the overall network that we need to deal with. The primary problem domain that we exist in is referred to as video analytics. And what that really means is that if, if you take any kind of a surveillance scenario or an authentication and authorization scenario where you want to apply facial recognition, you want to identify uh, you know, license plates of vehicles, you want to figure out uh, are the right people driving the right vehicles in the right area of your airport or your port, uh, these technologies actually come into play under those circumstances. One thing that actually differentiates us from most of the uh, other AI companies out there is that we typically tend to look at the solution space end-to-end, -end, by virtue of which uh, it's not really about uh, can we detect a vehicle or a license plate and you know our, our story ends over there. We tend to actually allow and facilitate the integration of those data artifacts into the rest of the ecosystem as well, so that uh, uh, you know there's a seamless integration touchpoint for these systems. One of the big issues that a lot of you know enterprises face when they actually bring in AI technologies from other partners into their ecosystem is that integration side of the house. 
Uh, and that gets super complex very, very quickly. And I think our, our background in both developing products and providing consulting services actually helps us come in and round off those requirements, wherein we can actually uh, help coach, guide, and also implement for our customers you know, the right integration solutions and the right integrated stories that they need in order for them to fulfill their own use cases. Now, herein lies the uh, interesting aspect of Edge. There are a couple of factors that we need to take into consideration when we start talking in terms of applying a video analytics uh, at the limit. There is a lot of data to be transmitted over the wire. Uh, and basically, whenever you transmit a lot of video information over the wire, it occupies bandwidth, there's data sensitivity requirements that you have to take into consideration, et cetera. And what we do effectively is, if we can offload all that processing closer to where the video is actually being captured, hence the edge, and we will transmit metadata over to our centralized servers. Uh, then at that given point of time, we actually enhance security over the wire. We also uh, enhance uh, our ability to reduce the bandwidth and by virtue of which the overall cost uh, of the deployment and uh, running of our systems as well. And that's one of the key areas where our presence at the edge actually comes uh, into play. The good news about the software and the hardware stack that we offer is that we do not you know, enforce any kind of a vendor lock-in. So we play with a wide variety of infrastructure partners out there in the market, and we're able to plug and play into you know, the most common solutions that exist from a video capture perspective as well. And Gorilla has mentioned in its materials before that it expects the edge computing market to hit $250 billion in 2024 and $4 trillion in 2030. So what are the big things driving that growth? I think the, the biggest thing driving that particular growth is the advent of 5G. To date, there's a lot of companies out there who are focused on edge computing, right? You know, the, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Googles of the world are all, are all in that particular market. What has been interesting uh, so far has been that uh, if you can actually connect to the edge within your own network, life is good for most of the solution offerings that exist today. The advent of 5G is actually making that deployment a lot more easier and a lot more accessible. And uh, the ability for us to create cordoned off private networks leveraging 5G infrastructure also becomes a lot more real. And a majority of the edge computing side of the house, uh, which is actually growing and evolving, is going to evolve with that particular network. So now network is not an afterthought. Network is actually part of your core infrastructure, right? And I think that is the most important uh, driving factor, at least in my opinion, as to uh, how the world is going to see that particular growth. Accessibility has always been the issue, right? And once you solve that particular access problem, shifting your computing rate around at the different tiers of those access access levels becomes a lot more eminent for growth. And that's where edge computing actually comes and plays a very important role. I mean, if I may add to that as well, one of the key developments we've seen in the last year post-pandemic is government infrastructure investment. Governments are more talking about smart cities, right? What does that mean for anybody? I mean, are we talking about entertainment, apps and beyond? Are we talking about health? Are we talking about connected houses? Is it your utility management, smart cars, car-to-car -car communication, or smart parking, or smart variables? So you've got a variety of these issues which governments are now facing, and that has only accelerated the requirement for what we call insights and intelligence. Governments now are looking at the data and are saying, am I getting the right bang for my buck? Is that data 
look at it this way. If you've got garbage in, you've got garbage out. You, there's no point in having uh, what we call any sort of analysis done on that data because it's going to be absolutely futile and useless. What we're trying to do is we're trying to give you good data so that the decision you can make for your business is absolutely worth that investment you're making. And that's where we tend to differentiate ourselves. And governments have now followed suit in the last year and a half. And we're seeing a lot more of these governments, especially the developing countries, which have lesser money. They're starting to do what is called a leapfrogging event. They're coming in and saying, I want to be better off, say, or I want to compare myself to someone like China or someone like Singapore. And they are fighting for that that little piece of land today. And so we're seeing that that expansion happen quite quickly. And that's why when you ask us a question, I think it makes a lot more sense for us to actually stand by our, our predictions. Right. And so Gorilla itself got its start with video intelligence technology and hardware more than two decades ago. How would you say it has transitioned its technology to meet these new needs? And how is video intelligence a good starting point? Actually, that's a good question, right? So, I mean, we are a two-decade-old company at this given point of time, and that in itself uh, kind of makes us unique in the market. The evolution of the uh, of the technology here at Gorilla has always been based on the need of the uh, local Taiwanese government. I mean, we are a Taiwanese company. But that's where the, the company actually started. It's where it's headquartered today, and our current focus is to take it global. Our position has always been around, uh, positioned around how do we help the local government and what are their needs. So the evolution actually started off from document processing, actually, right? So it, it was still AI-based, but AI-based document processing over to forms of network security and then over on to video surveillance technologies. So the interesting thing is that this market has evolved over a period of time. The quality of cameras that we have on our wrist today is much better than the quality of cameras that we had either on the CCTV infrastructure or on our, on our mobile phones 10 years ago, 15 years ago. As the technology has kind of evolved and uh, developed in its own right, so has the value positioning of Gorilla in that particular market also evolved with it. Uh, now, one thing that we've been uh, pragmatic about is that uh, there's always opportunity for us to leapfrog uh, technologies wherever possible. Being based in Taiwan is kind of interesting because uh, you know a majority of the uh, semiconductor and uh, ODMs exist over there. So we can actually have close partnerships with them to see how we can actually define uh, and drive an innovation strategy. But while innovation is important uh, to, to Gorilla, we are also got our feet uh, you know, firmly planted on the ground in, in the sense that if we can't deliver and demonstrate immediate value, it becomes very, very difficult for us to succeed in the market. So most of the value propositions in the AI ecosystem have always had an organic growth in the sense that many enterprises five, six, seven years ago, when they came into the market, I mean, they did not know exactly how they wanted to solve the problem. They only knew what problem they had to go solve. You know, the decades of experience that we have garnered today allows us to come in and say, this is how we can actually go about solving those problems. And I think that is the transition that has happened for Gorilla and its products and its solutions over the decades that we have operated in. So it has been organic growth sustained by keeping a very close eye on where the market is headed and more importantly, where the technology, even locally inside of Taiwan, is actually driving a generational leap forward. So that's been uh, our mainstay. And we, and we expect to continue to perform exactly just the same way. Right? And I think as we 
think in terms of globalizing uh, ourselves and executing on that strategy for us, we will do, we, we have a tried and tested you know, mechanism, right? Embed yourself in a country or embed yourself in an industry, learn and grow with that particular industry so that uh, you, know, you can establish a very strong storyline for yourself. And you will see us continue to make those investments as we expand into the uh, global market. You, you touched upon a lot of things I wanted to get into a little bit more, but you know, even just looking at sort of the you know the client level of all of this, because you, you mentioned how you kind of you you started out doing a lot of government work, but you know you have uh, now corporate clients that you know range a very very wide gamut. Uh, I'm interested in just sort of how different are the demands of each of those. And you mentioned uh, that there's been sort of a bidding process for some of your work. Is your process more of like coming to to meet a challenge that is already being asked for, or is, have you already kind of built what you want to sell and, and you're bringing them into that? Yeah, that's actually a good question to ask as well, in the sense that, look, it's at the end of the day, it's a mix of the two. Uh, we have uh, products and solutions that run out of the box, but at the end of the day, in the space of AI, especially in, in video analytics, running out of the box doesn't really mean that you hit all the use cases exactly the way our customers want to consume it. So there is always a need for us to go after customization. And that is our main bread and butter approach. Now, if we purely stick to that approach alone, what happens is that we might be turning away a bunch of customers who want to do unique things and unique things which probably are going to help redefine the industry in the next year or two. So uh, we have to have the fluidity within our own uh, ecosystem in order for us to embrace those challenges as well so that we can stay ahead of the curve. So uh, traditionally how we operate is basically trying to find a way to deliver ROI to our customers as quickly as possible so that we can establish a long-term relationship with them, right? So at the end of the day, we want to treat every customer as an account that we can, uh, that we can curate and help make them successful. Uh, and we derive our success directly from our customer's success, uh, as, as I think any company in this world should be doing today. So that kind of a, let me embed myself, let me help you grow, let me actually participate in your own innovation cycle. The light, well, while we ourselves drive our own innovation cycles is a very important strategy for us. Then the next issue that you identified was, hey, you know, there's a difference in between the public sector and the private sector. And in the public sector, you might be taking on more bids, a bid-centric work versus in the private sector, it's probably more project-centric work uh, that you take on. And there's a mix of both, even in the public sector today. Uh, the bids are kind of interesting because it's a good way for us to kind of uh, source deals quickly because these are deals that are available to a lot of folks outside. And the more interesting uh, aspect over there is that given that our name is kind of prevalent uh, in the Asian market, what happens is that we have a lot of institutions who come to us and say, uh, tell us, hey, we want to do something along these lines. We have no clue how to design this. Can you help mm -hmm. us define and design the RFP? So we actually you know, participate from a consulting perspective at, on that particular front as well. Right. Uh, so I think that gives us the kind of credibility and the reach that we need in these domains. But at the end of the day, the, the holy grail is always going to be around how do we have fast turnaround and time to market and time to value needs to be very, very quick. And you, we will only be able to achieve that if our product line is strong enough, because yeah. the product line is going to form the basis or the foundation uh, on top of which all these customizations that our customers need can be performed. We're seeing what is called as digital transformation. Every customer is asking for a transformation story. 
How can I be better off? How can I improve my efficiencies internally? That landscape is changing on a day-to-day -day basis for us. And we are working with our customer either to provide the solutions we have in-house, or as Rod said, we can help them build through their transformational journey as well. So the idea is not to just go in and say, I want a $10 million project. We can go in, you know, land and expand, embark on a, on a journey with the customer build with the customer over a period of time. And that's what Gorilla has done successfully. If you look at the way we have built with our customers, our customers have stayed with us 10, 15, 20 years. Some of them have actually been there for 20 years with us. And it's built up over a period of time. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're not here to rush in and get a big project and increase our EBITDA overnight. That's not going to happen because the customer now does not have his journey completely done for himself. Yeah, totally. And, you know, something I wanted to ask about that really touches upon kind of everything that we've been discussing here so far in terms of just the, the way that Gorilla has found it, its work and also the way in which it was, a you know, I think a very ready company for the public markets is I found it very interesting just looking at your, your board of directors and the way that you have been able to build a very strategic board even before, you know, this deal was announced. And so can you talk a little bit about the talent you've accumulated there and how that's helped you roll out? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great question, actually. So currently we have five board members, um, myself included. We have Greg Walker, who's a former Sony corporate vice president. What he brings to the table is, you know, corporate M&A, um, understanding of the U.S. markets at depth and understanding of the Asian markets at depth. So he's giving us a lot of advice on how to look at the market and the landscape over the next three to five years. What companies you need to look at? How do you want to evolve your technology in terms of acquisitions and so on? Ruth, on the other hand, has been a politician until 2020, 2010, uh, one of the well-known politicians across Europe. But what she brings to the table is, is something which, we are very, which is very close to our heart, um, ethics. And this is a topic which is quite sensitive for a number of people in AI. And Raj, along with Ruth, is actually working together to create a global ethics committee right now. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to piecemeal. I mean, there's a lot of rules and regulations which companies want to follow. But do they apply to what we're currently doing? Not really. Can we make it even more effective? Yes, we can. So what we are trying to do is we're creating a good actors club. We're bringing in some of the biggest names on the planet, putting together a, a global ethics committee and helping, you know, run the business along with our customer, you know, more ethically, you know, following. The third most important board member, Pina uh, Hirano, he's been in the business for 25 years. What he brings to the table is employee value and benefit. What we're trying to do, like if you look at Gorilla, it's a typical Asian company. What we're trying to do is we're trying to provide greater clarity for the employees, reduce bureaucracy, create it more flatter as an organization. It, you know, like we call it fitter, faster and flatter. He's kind of implemented that in his Japanese company. And if you know, if you've heard of Pina and his company, Asteria, they're the top two most profitable companies in Japan today. So we're trying to embed his values into the business. And then finally, we've got Tomoyuki Ni from SBI, which is former SoftBank business. Um, he's obviously invested in probably more than 100 companies across the globe. And he brings not just the knowledge, he's also bringing us um, a number of the clients from the in a Far East Asian market who are very keen to work with us on, um, especially on the insurance and the financial services side. And your company has also been expanding geographically quite a bit recently. How has that been taking shape over the last year? And ultimately, how have you been prioritizing new markets? That's a great question. So our key markets today have been Taiwan, parts of Southeast Asia, and some in Japan where we have some exclusivity with the likes of, um, uh, with, with the, likes of the large telecom companies. 
our focus is on what we call the digital transformation. I kind of threw that out there. We're identifying companies or governments who are going through that transformation right now. And we're working with them to build, not just build the product or the solutions, we're actually helping them build the RFP as well. So we're taking them to that journey as to what needs to be done. So if you look at the key markets for us today, uh, in terms of global expansion, UK, Germany, German-speaking Europe, parts of North Africa, Middle East, and of course, uh, parts of Southeast Asia um, are very, very key for us today. We're also looking at expanding into India. Now, obviously, a lot of people will ask us, you know, are you biting more than can you chew? But we have a team for that already in place. It's not just Raj and myself. We've actually built a very strong team and we've hired a number of very, very capable TA people as well. As you've known from our previous discussions uh, with the market, we're going to be a very acquisitive company as well. So we're, I, you know, we're looking at acquiring companies, not just for their customers, but for geographical presence and for the technology they bring um, at the same time. But you know, the one important factor when I look at organizations, when we look at uh, M&A is people. For us, it's all about people, people, people. How can these people help us grow as part of the Gorilla success story? Definitely. And then I just wanted to get into the chip shortage, which has been a major headwind across the industry. How has Gorilla managed to maintain its access to chip supply? This chip shortage has actually been a huge issue for uh, pretty much all the companies in this particular market, wherever there's hardware delivery requirements to be met and satisfied. One of the things that we have done is, um, as I said, we propagate a multi-vendor solution for ourselves. So we do not have vendor lock-in even for our, for our hardware needs. So we do have a diversified portfolio over there whom we work with to in order for us to kind of hedge that particular risk. And, and especially we have to do this because delivering into certain parts of the countries is easier through manufacturer X versus manufacturer Y. So we have to kind of balance that out. That's, that's one thing that we've done. The second thing is that the way we think about our, our sales pipeline and realizing our sales pipeline is uh, typically we tend to prime the pipeline early. So we actually have a good line of sight of to, as to what is coming down the pike for us. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the way we kind of uh, position ourselves to, to keep us secure on the, uh, on the market is to see that, hey, do, do I need to place orders up front in order for me to secure my particular position? And uh, when I'm doing that, are we being smart about it, right? I, I don't want to create an order backlog, which is of unique hardware pieces that other customers may not need, but how do I take the commoditized hardware pieces and uh, I get them going on day one? So that's, so that's one strategy that we use. You know, we can actually prime that particular inventory for ourselves. The second strategy is that we work with a bunch of distributors and has our pipelines actually get a little strengthened. We tend to give our distributors a heads up saying that, hey, this is what's coming down the pike for us. Can you please be prepared? And that gives us a little bit of cushion to work. With. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that uh, you know, we haven't faced the same problems that uh, many of the other companies outside uh, of us have faced. Uh, there have been uh, delays and you know, many companies face delays in, in the range of like you know, two to four months. And I think uh, on our end, we've kind of been able to manage that uh, in, in, the, in the range of about four to six weeks. So by taking these strategic moves into consideration. But the reality is that we have to kind of embrace this uh, shortage in the supply chain issues that, that are going on. And that, that also means that we have to set and manage expectations with our uh, customers. The good news is that the customer base themselves are realizing 
where the market is at and uh, the kind of uh, pitfalls uh, in the uh, supply chain that exists today because they are getting hit by the same issues for different aspects of their own business. So I think, um, you know, so as long as, you know, both us and our customers are in the problem domain together, trying to, you know, kind of root for each other's mutual success, some of these conversations become a lot more easier if we have it up front rather than, you know, you wait till the end and go, oh, sorry, it's going to be another 10 weeks. And, you know, just given that we are the Smack Insider podcast, we, we got to talk about the deal a little bit, but there's a lot, a lot to chew on there, just in that, you know, for one, you announced your combination with Global SPAC partners in December, and it was kind of right as the market was starting to turn into a difficult cycle, especially for technology companies. And so, I mean, just in general, how did Gorilla come to the decision that it was a good time to take that next step to a public listing and, and why a SPAC? That's a, that's a great question. Gorilla has been toying about going public in the Japanese market uh, prior to Global SPAC's approach. Now, they had looked at the Japanese market. The Japanese market was a little, you know, was a little difficult for them because they were a small cap business. And the Japanese market was still kind of toying with the idea about AI companies. There were only about four or five good AI companies on the market. And at, at this point of time, when Global was actually speaking to a number of Southeast Asian players, including some of the big ones who actually went, went public as well, we were speaking to SBI on another project and they talked about Gorilla. And when we looked at Gorilla, what attracted gorilla uh, to us was not where it was today it's the market it could be in the next four to five years there are a lot of companies which we could have actually taken public but it was about how we could position ourselves and what did that success parameter look like in four to five years we were able to define that vision very clearly and that allowed us to actually pick and choose gorilla and now it was a difficult market and obviously it has been a difficult market especially with the pipe but as you've seen we managed to retain our pipe investors if you look at the transaction, we had about 168 million um, of SPAC trust and about 50 million of cash on closing, which we were anticipating. That allowed us to actually do what we wanted to do over the last uh, two to three months. We're also very active in the M&A market, as I said, and we're also looking at other avenues of fundraising at the same time. Yeah, I guess it's exactly what I wanted to talk to because, you know, we have seen a number of deals that just haven't made it to close uh, this year in terms of in SPAC land, but you didn't sit on your hands through this rocky market. You know, Global SPAC and Gorilla made a number of interesting modifications to the deal structure in between announcement and close. And just in sort of in general, could you describe what some of the things that were, were changed there and, and why they helped bring some certainty to the deal? Sure. Um, so one of the issues we had initially was uh, was the pipe. Obviously, we wanted to close this deal with cash in the in the kitty, right? I mean, there's no point in doing a, a SPAC transaction if 168 million of the SPAC trust decided to just walk away and we had no cash. So we made sure that we had the right investors. So to do that, we actually took a long time between December, actually November, December of last year, all the way up until March, April of, of 2022 to select the right partner. And finally, we got the two right partners for us who've actually been very supportive. I think that is one of the key elements for us. They were our driving force. And today they are actually still our driving force because they're helping us in terms of identifying new clients in the region. They're coming to us, supporting us and telling us, hey, these are the clients you need to speak to. And they could potentially actually um, allow us to expand geographically in the markets of Hong Kong and other parts of Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and Philippines. So the, choosing the right partner was very important. Secondly, it was also about the market entry at that point of time. There was a lot of issues in terms of, are we going to stay in Southeast Asia? Are we going to globalize? And how is that globalization going to take shape? So to do that, we needed the right teams in place. 
And at that point of time, when I approached Raj, uh, Raj being a nearly two-decade Microsoft veteran, he understood the business, he looked at the market, and he jumped on the bandwagon. And similar to Raj, we've had a number of other people come in and join the business. That gave me more confidence to, you know, to kind of rely on the right people to help grow the business, the technology, and then attack the market as well. And finally, when we were about to take, I think we were about to go public in, um, in the, kind of the first week of July, there were some hiccups, some delays. But we still managed to go through. You know, we we held our ground and we managed to go public on the 14th of July. It has been a tough, 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 tough task, but we finally managed to get through. You know, and just sort of with the benefit of hindsight now, I mean, do you have any advice for other companies that may be contemplating a SPAC merger, or is there anything that in sort of the SPAC structure that you think could be improved upon? You know, we see a lot of changes in, in structure and deals. We have the SEC talking about what they would like to see in terms of changes, yeah. but just sort of what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that probably have, you know, five different SPACs calling them. And also, you know, there's SPACs trying to figure out how to make structures work better for, for better deals, which is what everybody wants. Yes. So one of the things which is very attractive about global, and it was also a very attractive mechanism for our investors, is the, the CDR rights, right? Um, and what we, we, we said, we told our investors, we're going to put our money where the mouth is. And we gave them a target. And we said, we're going to hit this particular target this year. If we don't hit the target, both in terms of revenue and EBITDA, you get an X amount of, of your shares from the founders and the original investors. That was one chunk of it. The second chunk of it, it now relies on the 2023 numbers. So we went back to them and said, okay, here's 2023 numbers. If you believe in us, then we will uh, stick to these numbers, both in terms of revenue and EBITDA. And if we're able to hit those numbers, obviously we're able to claw back some of the shares. If not, you get an upside as well at the same time. Now, this is all about you know, helping uh, shareholders understand that we were willing to take that risk which is important, but they were also willing to understand that the existing shareholders of Gorilla were absolutely committed to the deal. I think this is what allowed everybody to move and go through the transaction, whether it was the bankers, whether it was the, the legal teams, um, or it was the pipe investors. It gave them confidence that the existing board members of Gorilla and the existing shareholders were willing to give up up to $140 million of their money to protect the interests of the shareholders. So, you know, it's a tough market, I understand. But at the end of the day, you want to protect your shareholders, right? If you can protect your shareholders and come up with a very innovative structure, you always do that because in the long run, it's absolutely going to benefit the business. And you will have very strong, supportive um, investors in your business. Definitely. And so now that you have a few weeks as a public company behind you, I'm curious to hear if there's been anything that has been surprisingly easier or perhaps more difficult as a public rather than a private company. Well, it has been fantastic. I'm, I am not going to tell you anything otherwise. It has been a fantastic journey. It, it has allowed us to reach out to customers who did not know us previously. Now they all they have to do is look at Gorilla and find out who these guys are, what they do. Earlier it was Gorilla who, now it's like, oh, Gorilla you, right? But also, you know, just taking a, a little bit of a joke on this is our days go faster. We tend to work 18 hours a day. I never used to work 18 hours a day. I used to work eight hours a day, so which is great. Um, but it's, it's so far, we haven't experienced any major pitfalls. Yes, you've got to do your filings. You've got to do your quarterly reports and so on and so forth. But I think once you've streamlined those, those operational issues, 
I think this is going to be a very good journey. We will face pitfalls. We're not oblivious to the fact. We will face difficulties. We will face issues. But we're going to take that with a pinch of salt and I'll do it with a smile. We're, we're fine. Yeah. Great. And it appears like most of your competitors in the edge computing space are listed major companies. So how does being public help you compete in that arena? Uh, so the, the way we think about it is that the market is big enough that there is space for us as a player in there. The other thing is that when you think about these larger companies uh, th that exist in this particular arena, uh, they typically get pinched by one important artifact for their business, which is a minimum ticket size. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if you take companies like, you know, IBM or Senstein, and if they want to get into this particular uh, market and there's a deal there, you know, they, they need to make sure that they make at least 250 to $500 million. The interesting aspect for us is that there are a lot of enterprises out there who are trying to figure out how security and video analytics kind of fits into their ecosystem. And there are smaller ticket sizes that actually come into play. And we are very happy to go after those smaller ticket sizes. And the advantage of us chasing the, the smaller end of the spectrum over there is because, uh, ha as you've heard uh, both Jay and I talk about uh, you know, the, this whole ecosystem of ours for the last 30 minutes, it's always been around building longer-term relationships. Just because the relationship starts with a smaller dollar amount, it doesn't mean that we can't sustain growth and depth in that particular growth with those customers. And I think that's the differentiation uh, that we tend to embrace. And that's also the aspect that allows us to coexist with some of the larger players in, in the market today. And so this is a technology and a market that is expanding relatively fast. So I'm interested to hear uh, if there's a new thing on the technology side that you're most excited about. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Where do I start? Uh, you know, as, as a technologist, I think uh, uh, this particular industry keeps me uh, awake because there's just so much to learn, so much to uh, kind of experience and grow with. I would say that uh, at this given point of time, what excites me the most is the advent of uh, 5G, the mech infrastructures that we need to go after, how we embed ourselves uh, into those infrastructures. So that's one side of the house uh, because that's going to give us the ability to kind of penetrate and establish the depth that we need in the industry in the immediate future. So that's one thing. The second thing is that there's a ton of uh, evolution taking place uh, in the world of system on chip uh, and trying to embrace a core firmware centric solutions so that we can get uh, the better efficiencies of scale, better operational capacities, uh, and also embracing lower end of the spectrum of, of processors uh, is going to be the next mainstay for us. Uh, the most important thing for me uh, fr from an, uh, a technology perspective is to make sure that we don't get complacent. The field is constantly evolving. We are not talking about evolution cycles in five years now. We are talking evolution cycles in five months. So uh, keeping current and keeping true is going to be a very important way in which we actually grow our tribe forward. Great. Well, there's there's plenty to be excited about, I think, in this market, and also just with Gorilla in general. We're, uh, we're we'll be fascinated to continue to watch you guys as it's now a public company. I want to congratulate you once again on, on such a great debut, and, and we'll be fascinated to see all of the new stuff you'll have coming out uh, very soon. But thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Thank you for having us.